This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my channels. Today's guest is Andrew Doyle, who is a comedy writer and comedian who is best known at this point in history as the chief architect of the Titania McGrath juggernaut, which can be found on Twitter. And also she's got an autobiography out there, which you can find in the description. Andrew Doyle joins me and we speak about his process of writing, of creating comedy, and of battling wokeness wokeness, which is a authoritarian ideology that is sweeping the nations, all of them, all of the nations, at least America and the UK, which is what we specifically talk about. His philosophical qualms with wokeness and the system which of thought which he hopes will replace it someday, which he calls social liberalism. This is a very wonderful, fun, comfortable conversation. You're going to love it. You will. You will love this. And because of that, I'm going to get out of the way. Here's Andrew Doyle. Why, why are people in authority capitulating to this? Anyway, I guess we're going to talk about that, right? When we, or is this it? Are we doing it now? Well, well, we'll do it whenever you want to do it. You can just say go. I usually just cut in at the most uh, awkward moment and then cut well, out perfect. at the most awkward. Well, you know, there'll be a lot of awkward moments with me. That's what I'm good at. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's go. It's quite nice because you said you wanted to talk about other things. Because I do, I do get asked the same questions quite a lot. So if you can throw some curveballs, that'd be amazing. I would really, I would really be grateful. Well, that would you know? be great for me to yes, show just, you a different side. Yeah. So whenever you want to go, let's go. Cool. Well, um, I, I, I did want to talk about your, your, your writing process and comedy as a process and what you think about that and conceptualize that and how you got into that, maybe a little biographical, uh, like kind of thread. Yeah. Very few people asked me that. One person asked me that once about, about my writing process and was really probing about it. And it really made me think, because often I think writers don't think about their process or don't reflect on what they're doing. Uh, and it is uh, you, it's quite habitual, you know? You sort of get into a habit of doing things in a certain way and then you don't, and then you sort of take it for granted. So, yeah, I mean, how did I get into it? I've always written things. I've always uh, created things through, through writing from a very early age. And I remember when I was, I was, I was uh, five, I remember writing what I thought was a novel um, on a notepad, but it wasn't a novel, of course. My grandmother typed it up, and it was only like four, or four pages or something like that, which I then illustrated. But I thought it was like this big work of art. But, but you know, always used to write stuff at school. I wrote, I created um, a school newspaper when I was very young, sort of 10 years old, um, which I basically wrote myself. And, and I just loved that thing of, of, of the written word and what you could, what, what you could achieve through it. Um, and I read a lot as well, and I've always read a lot. So um, I think, how did I get into it then? So uh, the, the the writing has always been something that's been present. You know, I've always, I've always done that anyway, and I would be doing that irrespective of whether or not it, it was being published. And I think like with anything else, you only get good at something if you do it an awful lot. I think that's sort of the secret to it. Um, so... Uh, what kind yeah. of genres were you focused on then? Like journalism, uh, f- what kind of no, fiction? No, I did short story stuff and I did a lot of com- comedy stuff. I used to write stories that were funny or that I, I thought were funny, you know? Yeah. I always used to like making people laugh as a kid. Um, that used to be something I used to do a lot. And also because I was very fat. So it was like, it's almost like a cliche, isn't it? You, you, you sort of, uh, there's something in that that you, that you sort of end up being the clown. Uh, as a kind of defense mechanism to, I guess, mm. circumvent bullying, I, I suppose. I don't know. I uh, wouldn't like to psychoanalyze it. I think that's a dark territory. Um, but, yeah. And then um, just carried on writing uh, all the way through to university. And then at university, I started putting on plays, either at, at the university, at the theater, with literally hiring the theater, the local theater, and putting on these plays, this sort of studio theater type thing. Uh, and you and then, compose the plays? Yeah. I wrote a number of plays as an undergraduate, so when I was sort of 18, 19, 20. Um, they were very fantastical, uh, sort of surrealist kind of plays. Um, and uh, then I 
moved near to London. Um, well, no, I didn't, but I ended up in Oxford, which isn't really near London, but it was near enough for me to put plays on on the in the fringe there. There's a thing. There's a whole sort of fringe theatre network in London, uh, and basically what that means is you end up putting plays on in rooms above pubs, which is what I did. And specifically, there's one pub theatre called the Canal Cafe Theatre, which is where I put on a couple of plays in comedy as well as drama. Uh, and that's sort of, yeah, that's sort of how I ended up. I sort of learned pretty quickly uh, that you won't get anything on unless you put it on yourself. You know, you have to just keep pushing yourself. You know, there's no and magic. What was it? How did you, what was that transition from like the written word to something that's produced and, and involves the audience or being more aware of the live situation? Do you mean in terms of stand up? Well, I guess when you started writing plays, did that eventually translate into stand-up? Is that how you fell in love uh, or started to enjoy that back and forth? No, no. the reason the stand-up started is because I'd written a sketch show with two other guys, and um, um, one of whom is now a stand-up comic, the other is a, a pretty well-known novelist, oddly, which wasn't something I'd anticipated. Um, we put on this show, and there was about seven or eight minutes short of the hour. You know, we had an hour slot and we didn't have any other sketches. So I wrote a stand-up piece and I did the stand-up piece as part of the night. And uh, I actually still have it on video somewhere, like videotape, so I would have to get it transferred. I've got no idea uh, what it's like. I, I suspect it's bad. I really do. Although I, I, I remember enjoying doing it. And then I did it again. We, I think we had like two or three nights, so I did it each night. And um, yeah, after that, I got hooked on it because I really enjoyed the experience of, of it, even though it was probably awful. For you or for the audience or both? <laughs> I've no doubt. You know, when you start stand up, you're you, you're always imitating the, the 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 people you like the most. You know, and you're it takes a long time to find your voice. You know, that sounds that sounds really esoteric and pretentious, but uh, there's something to it. Like this is why I always think the best stand ups are in, invariably over forty. Like all my favorite stand-ups, and that's always been the case. Even when I was young, all my favorite comics were always, uh, you know, they'd lived, they'd done stuff, and they'd had the they had the chance to. I ne I was never a fan of the sort of young trendy comics uh, who who didn't really have anything to say. Uh, they could be funny, but they didn't really appeal to me. Um, there's a really derogatory phrase called a haircut comic, which people use on the circuit here. So it's for a young comic who's just like got a really nice haircut, and that's it. That's all they've got really. Hmm. Uh, so uh, and that you know they so yeah so that's that's sort of how it started and and then I was teaching I was I was a school teacher and I was which is awkward being a stand up and a school teacher because of course a lot of your work ends up online not not through video but through quotes so people would quote me online and kids would print out reviews of my shows or they'd they'd write stuff on the blackboard or whatever you know whiteboard as it was um, so it's not really compatible yeah. So uh, hmm. I, was, I was juggling, by, but then when I started to earn enough as a stand-up, I, I decided to go part-time as a teacher, and then eventually, completely uh, go into writing and, and stand-up, which was a big risk. I was, I hadn't, I mean, literally nothing financially for a long. I struggled an awful lot after that. So, um, and I knew that was going to be the. I knew, I knew it was going to be tricky. But you kind of thought, I kind of thought you've got to. I've got to take the plunge, you know. That's so what, what year was it when you started the stand-up stuff? Good question. Uh, I don't, about 15 years ago. Okay. Okay. Something like that. I think that would be about right, because it was around the time I was doing my doctorate. So, yeah, around that, around that what, sort of time. May I ask what you uh, doctored in? You may. Uh, English literature. Well, specifically English Renaissance poetry. Oh, I can be more specific if you want, but it's probably going to bore, bore everyone. No, no, no. I want to. I want to know. I want to know. All right. Well, the, the the doctoral thesis was entitled "Outsider Epistemology: Discourses of Homophilia in the Work of William Shakespeare, Sir Philip Sidney, and Richard Barnfield." So it's it, it, massive commercial potential there, as you can yeah, imagine. No. I, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm shivering. I want to. Yeah. I want it in my palms right now. I think there's only two copies in existence three maybe i've got one in the attic probably back in northern ireland in my mum's attic uh there's one in the bodleian library in oxford and there's one in the british library in london and i think that's about it and thank god for that i don't look at it i don't even know what i said 
I don't look at it. I'd be, I think, I think, I think, because I was so immersed in that sort of post-structuralist stuff. Okay. This is the very stuff I criticise now. Uh, I think I was deploying a lot of the jargon that they use. This is how I know it because I had to read all the Foucault stuff, and I had to. But I think I was very much, even though I was resisting it in what I was saying, even then. I was using it. I was using the terminology. You said you were resisting um, that post-structuralist stuff. What, so, what, yeah. what, what was it about that that you didn't like? Well, um, in, in Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality, which is the sort of founding text of queer theory, in part two of the History of Sexuality, he talks about how the word homosexual, uh, which came about during the late 19th century medical discourses. It's at that point at which the reality of homosexuality is sort of conjured into being. In other words, it doesn't exist until there is language there with which it can be expressed. This is the fundamental idea of, of, of uh, the postmodernist thought, that, 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 that language constructs power and reality. And I don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy it is because I read a lot of gay literature from the 16th century, from the 15th century, uh, where there are these people who are exclusively attracted to members of their own sex and even even identify as such. They use phrases like uh, masculine love or Ganymede, you know, they've got, or, or sodomites, you know, they've got, I, they've got ways of, almost forms of, although sodomite was never a form of self-identification, it was always a, a, a legalistic term. But there are these ways of self-identifying, particularly through poetry. You know, there's a poet called Richard Barnfield, who was a major figure in, in what I was writing about, who was a gay poet, and used to and and wrote gay love sonnets from one man to another, very explicitly so. And uh, only he and Shakespeare, he and Shakespeare, are the only two uh, poets of the era to write the gay love sonnets. They're just the two. Were of them. they? Was that because they were the only ones who could get away with it? No. I, well, he didn't get away with it. Barnfield was disinherited by his family. Okay. So I don't think that uh, you know um, Shakespeare. Uh, got away with it to an extent because, of course, um, by that point, King James was on the throne and King James was openly gay. Right? There's no, he even used to kiss his lovers at court. And he didn't give a damn who saw. So you're living in that sort of climate. It sort of changes things a little bit. And in practice, no one was, uh, particularly no one uh, with cultural capital was, was prosecuted for being gay or for being a sodomite, as they would have said, uh, unless it was tied to some other infraction, you know? Like when they got Francis Bacon, they got him because of, I think it was bribery or something, but they tagged on, um, they tagged on the, the fact that he only slept with men. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah, so that's why it involved a, a kind of repudiation of post-structuralist thought, because I was like, these poems, these are gay love poems by, by men who are expressing their, their sexuality, their sexual orientation. They don't have the word homosexual. They don't have the word gay or queer. But they have these poems, these these ways of expressing that 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 quite important aspect of, of who they are. Uh, yeah. And to me, it's it's the, it's the same thing. Like postmodernism always falls short when you find the contradictions in its argument. When you find you know the, the inherent incessant focus on language, it's like it, it's it's like they don't understand visual arts or dance or anything with, to do with the body or to do with aesthetic beauty. You know, it's it's, com it's completely anathema to all of that stuff. So I never bought it, and I did write. In opposition to it at the time uh and it was you know not many people bought that because it was quite trendy back then yeah. well it's still trendy now i mean well i guess it's ascendant oh. so it's in a different way i mean my the people i know people i know i know like a couple of people who are in academia now in english literature which i should say is my area they I I insist that it's no longer fashionable all this foucauldian stuff it's it's considered outdated outmoded and that the only people who are really sticking to it are like in sociology departments and, and other branches of the humanities, these weird uh, subjects like queer studies or gay studies or fat studies or women's studies or gender studies, you know, you know, anything that ends in studies, which should probably be mistrusted. Uh, they, they've held on to this, this stuff that was, uh, you know, it, it, it's been long debunked, really. Mm -hmm. There's this uh, aspect, well, in current events and in your country, there's that LGB alliance. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I've been studying a lot over the last year, the uh, kind of the, the dialogue within the LGBT community, and yeah. how there's, there, there's this resistance faction, or like, it seems like at some point that that community was wed together by resistance oh. itself. I mean, what community? That, that's like, I, there isn't a community, is there? There just isn't. There's, there, like, I, you know, this is the problem. I mean, I, you know, I have a lot more in common with some of my straight friends and some of my gay friends. It's not like there's a, 
you, you know, that's not that's not who you are, your your sexuality. That's just a, a part of you, like whether you're left or uninteresting to me. Um, yeah. And that's not to say it's not important. It, you know, of course, sexuality and desire and love, these are really important aspects of who we are. Um, but that they're not all that we are. Um, and they certainly don't determine our political viewpoints, which is what a lot of people seem to think. That if you're part of the LGBTQIA plus community, you, you therefore vote for Labour or the Democrats or whatever, or you, you have a certain view on certain things. And it, to me, it's a it's a completely patronising uh, way of, of looking at human beings. And it's also really undermining human individuality, you know. But it, it works on the level of getting policies through. It works as a political movement to consider Fine, themselves a block. Well, there's a strategic thing of, 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 of organizing together, absolutely. But the trouble is that that's not the way, it, in, in, in practice, that's not the way it happens. I mean, you look at the media and you look at the, the way they describe LGBT people, don't they, in the, me in the mainstream media all the time. Um, this is something that isn't just about lobby groups. This is the way that we, you know, that we talk about. People self-identify, they say, oh, I'm, I'm you know, speaking as an LGBT person, which you can't be. You can't be lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. You know, that doesn't make any sense at all. And like you say, there's now this the, sort of the LGB alliance. And the reason that they've formed is that they're upset about the idea of people saying that you can't be same-sex attracted, right? That actually it's same-gender same attracted. And that, in fact, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's transphobic if you have genital preferences, right? Yeah. Uh, but that, in, to me, is a homophobic position to take, you know? The idea that, that uh, lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender people all get on and all agree on everything. They don't even agree within their own camps. I mean, gay people don't agree with other gay people. Trans people don't agree with other trans people, let alone across the board, whatever letter you've been assigned. I think the whole thing is nonsense. I'd love to get rid of the whole acronym thing, the whole LGBT, whatever the fuck we're calling it now. Get rid of it. I think it's useless. I think it's divisive. I don't think it helps us. Let's get rid of the gay But why is well, it so attractive? Why is it so... Uh, um, why is that narrative structure itself so easily... Uh, captured the the media and spoken about that way it seems like it's a very addictive so did you just Sorry? throw a cat over your shoulder there was a there was some sort of animal there yeah she's walking all over me right now I'm really sorry no, you shouldn't just pass that off that was quite a moment you just you just pass the cat over and you know i mean there's a, there's a real moment there I actually really adore animals. I adore them. You know, I think you should keep her in. How many do you, I was going to ask you, are you a dog or a cat or a gerbil? I love, I love both, but I would, I would, I grew up with cats, but I would adore to have a dog. I, I really want a dog. Yeah. Is I mean, there not I room for your life? No, I don't have a garden. You know, oh. I know, I think you need a garden. I think, uh, it's a lot of effort, isn't it? You've got to, you've got to, you, they take a lot. Whereas a cat, because a cat doesn't care about you, you can, you, it's fine. They can look after themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're essentially selfish beings, aren't they? You know this. Well, I do. I know that, but I, I, I still think that there would be a cat lobby if they could speak. They, they'd call come together to get their will enforced Maybe. on the public. On the that cat content. there. What's that cat's name? What's it called? Uh, her name's Bijou. Bijou. Well, let yeah. me tell you, if, B, if Bijou was the size of a lion, she'd eat you. You should know that. So just don't, don't trust her. I mean, she's a no lovely creature, but look. They have they have brutal instincts. It, I, it seems like you have some uh, externalized cat phobia here. There's maybe, something. Working. Maybe maybe maybe. I mean, I was bitten by one once, so maybe that was it. Just one time. Just one time. Yeah. That's and all it, it took. It's really unfair to dismiss a whole species on the basis of one experience. And actually, no. Look, I love the cats that I had growing up. They were they were really affectionate, uh, decent decent creatures. Uh, but yeah, I, I want a dog because dogs are stupid and they're. Uh, utterly dependent on you, and I feel like I need someone or something to be dependent on me for my own ego. I, think the, anything. I, yeah. I feel like we're actually talking about your 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 dream partner on some level. <laughs> you know, this is like. The... I hope you're not accusing me of bestiality. There, there's some. You know... No, no, I'm just saying there's a metaphor here. We're, 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 something's being expressed here on a, on a mm -hmm. deep level. I mean, do you know a lot about psychoanalysis? I, I speak with psychologists, and you know these interviews kind of tend to be a little psychological once we get to that third or fourth level. I'm more than happy to be analysed if you if you really? feel that, particularly if you feel you can solve some of my problems. I'm all I'm I'm totally happy with that. Yeah. Well, it's it's hard because you you have split personality, so I don't know which which I'm aspect sure. of you is like aware of itself, or if you know if you, if the marionette is like making you move, or if you're making the puppet move, kind of thing. I don't yeah. Know. Do you want to know who you're talking to at the moment? I feel like James McAvoy in Split. It could be any of them. 
Because I've got a few. Because I've got a few characters, you know. No, at the moment I'm Andrew. This is Andrew talking. But you, we're breaking up. I was going to ask you about oh, that. Well, me, okay. Because I, um, this I, is probably a, a question you don't want to talk about or something like that. Because there's the Titania person, right? And me and yeah. my friend are we're we're trying to figure out how she's going to go out. And like, either she's going to get self canceled in like some sort of Twitter harikari, or I yeah. think she's going to get red pilled, move to America, and start doing guns <laughs> and girls videos and the bikinis. But because yeah, she's British, man. she's going to shoot herself and bleed out with a bottle of Soylent in her hand. I've been thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, all sorts of options are open, aren't they? I mean, I think I, I quite like the idea that she becomes sort of a trad wife, you know, and sort of like, you know, just becomes like a housewife with kids and that's what she wants. And, it's, you know, maybe, I don't know, uh, whatever's funniest I'll probably, I'll probably do. Well, th- that, that's an interesting because uh, she started kind of as a bit, right? Did you have like a narrative around her, or like like we don't have to talk about that character itself? But yeah. d- does a story come along with these characters? No, I, I don't know if you've read the book that she wrote. Um, no, Sorry, right. So she wrote a book called a Gu- "Woke: A Guide to Social Justice," yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and which is available at all good bookshops. Um, and the first two chapters of that are about her background and about her. Uh, her life. Uh, the first chapter is all about her. It's called My Struggle. The first chapter is called My Struggle. And she's talking about, you know, what she went through as a child and all, all the oppression. But of course, she wasn't oppressed because she, you know, she lived in like Kensington and uh, had frequent holidays to the Maldives. Did um, she have a dog uh, or a cat? I, don't think she had, I think she had tropical fish. Oh, okay. Because she's into diversity. So she would go for pro- tropical fish. Okay. I don't know. I've just sort of decided that. <laughs> so, okay. No, no. Like, this is the this is the process. Like, how do you decide? Like, it, it resonates yeah. with that character. or It doesn't resonate with that character. Yeah, I don't think she would. I think she would feel contempt for dogs because they're too needy. I don't think she's a very nice person. You know, I don't. Th- I yeah, don't. She's think got. That. There's a heart there somewhere. I feel it. Yeah. I think it's buried under layers of bile. So if it is there, you know, I mean, she, I mean, you've seen how vicious she can be online. You know, she's she's not a, you know, she's a bully. She's one of those bullies. Hmm. She loves hmm. the power that she gets by uh, by claiming to be the voice of minorities and speaking on their behalf. This posh, rich white girl who is who uh, is determined to be offended about everything and wants everyone cancelled uh, and thinks she's a genius. You know, uh, I really love arrogance, uh, not as a quality. I think it's an awful quality, but as as in order to. Uh, as a character to play that character is really fun to me why do you like it and not like it why is it attractive if it's so repellent because i find it funny it's 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 a repellent characteristic which involves inherently a complete lack of self-awareness and a lack of self-awareness is always funny why why i was watching an interview with you um on some like very well produced uh, show, and you said that that's because it's funny. Like what 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 is funny? What does that mean? Like like a self reflection. Yeah, I mean, most. I mean, an awful lot of comedy uh, comes out of characters who are not aware of their own situation. If you take it back to drama, I mean, the very phrase "dramatic irony." Uh, when 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 people use that phrase in an academic context, dramatic irony is when the the audience knows something that the characters do not. Uh, and that can create, that can be used for, uh, uh, for, you know, for drama, but it can also be very funny. Uh, and I think that's, if you take a character like David Brent in The Office, he has no awareness that his attempts to be seen as this kind of um, everyone's best friend, you know, he has no awareness that the jokes are cringeworthy, not funny. He has no awareness that people... Whenever he talks to me, they just want to get away from him. He thinks he's everyone's best friend. And, and, and there's something quite funny and poignant about that. Because everything he's doing is really well-intentioned. He's actually not a bad person. But you, 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 know, but, but you do laugh because he doesn't, he doesn't realize how he comes across. Why we find people who are, who are not self-aware funny, I don't know. I think that is something that is uh, a psychological question, probably an evolutionary question. Um, but it's the same reason that we we are surprised we are we we laugh when someone falls over we we laugh at surprising things 
um, I'm not well equipped to tell you why we laugh at what we yeah. laugh at. But, I, but well, what I can tell you is that lack of self-awareness does make me laugh. To quote the interview that I watched earlier, you said that cruelty can be funny. And how do you know when, to, when it's not funny, when, when you're going too far? Like, well, it's that thing of, you know, you know, like if you, well, if you see someone fall over on the streets, you have an instinct to laugh. And then as soon as you do, you feel bad and you want to help the person, right? So it's not necessarily incompatible with the humanity, you know? Um, it's an instinct, rather. It, you, you must have been in uh, comedy shows where someone says something, you laugh in spite of yourself. And that's what I'm talking about. Okay. And I think there's a different, that's why I think laughing at something cruel is better than being cruel. But I think there's a kind of catharsis about it. You know, you sort of almost, almost like you, you, you purge yourself of that, of that negative aspect of your character. Um, and, I, and, and I don't think it means you have no empathy. I think it means that you're it, quite the reverse, in fact. It's like, when the, I mean, the Greeks knew this. The Greeks used to uh, represent, not visually, but they used to um, represent on stage grotesque acts of violence and cruelty on the, on the understanding that it purged those uh, natural human instincts in the audience. That's what catharsis means, is this purging, uh, cleansing. Um, and that's why you would, uh, you, you know, in the, in the last act of a, a Greek tragedy, a messenger will come on and describe some awful, brutal, grotesque, like in Medea when he comes on and describes the, uh, the poison dress. The woman puts on the poison dress and as she pulls it off, all her flesh gets torn, torn off her bones and, it, and she's screaming and it's horrible and grotesque and awful. And the audience watch that, the theory goes, to purge themselves of any kind of uh, violent, brutal aspects of their human nature, which we, we, you know, which we all have. Um, I guess the same goes for comedy. A lot of the time with comedy, when, when we laugh at something that, that is a bit near the knuckle, you know, a bit, a bit, a bit unfair, uh, we're almost laughing as a kind of acknowledgement that we don't believe that, you know, that we don't like that. Um, so I think there's something, there's something in that. That's why I've got no truck with people who say that, jokes normalize hatred i think they do the reverse hmm. well that's the that's the interesting thing about woke culture is that it's shutting down our ability to self-reflect yeah. by, by starting to section off parts of discourse and and it's always done selfishly the the narcissist the arrogant narcissist that's going around canceling other people um yeah. is is boxed in by that ideology. There's something in that ideology that shuts down self-reflection. Yeah, there absolutely is. And that's because all ideologies shut down self-reflection. I think that's part of them. What they do is they provide you a template by which you can live. An ideology will say, this is what you think about this, this, and this, and this. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to do any thinking for yourself. We've done the thinking for you. That's what all ideologies have in common, whether they be, they be political or religious or whatever. So, uh, the woke ideology is no different. This is why, as you will know, uh, if you talk to someone who, who expresses a particularly woke worldview, you will know their opinions about absolutely everything else. Right? That's why that happens. And it's not nice because I think deep down people have the capacity for freedom of thought, even those who have been indoctrinated, and hopefully they can release themselves from it and start to question certain aspects of their own viewpoint. Um, I would hate to be subsumed in any kind of ideological worldview, I, I would mistrust it. And I would also hate to be in the situation where I think I have all the answers. I think it's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, I think it's not good for yourself on, a, on just a basic psychological human level. I think, uh, uh, you know, we're all trying to understand what's going on in the world. And, and to, to start from a position of certainty uh, I think is quite self-destructive, you know. Well, how did but, you how did you learn that lesson? I mean, at some point, everybody's arrogant. You have to read, grow out of that. Just reading, that's all yeah. it is. Just, just read lots of stuff. Like this is, I think, I think people just don't read enough. I think, um, and they don't understand the perspectives of the people they're criticizing. So you've got to make an effort. And, and, and of course, it's always more interesting and fun to read a book which which completely confirms your existing prejudices and your biases. And you read it and you think, yeah, that's what I think. And you've expressed it much better than I could. And that's really, that, it, there's something quite fun and exciting about it. Or to get caught down the rabbit hole of YouTube and you end up watching like videos of the people you like. And you hear them reiterate these points. And it, 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 there's something uh, comforting about that. And for every video you watch like that, you should watch another 
where someone is earnestly and intelligently expressing the, the other point of view. I mean, I've, I've, I've done a lot of reading. I've read a lot of the woke and social justice activists work. Um, and sometimes they have a point. Right. So this is the thing. So, so it's not the case that you can be completely. The most excessive elements are, I think, very, very dangerous. Uh, sorry, you broke up. You you can't be completely dismissive. I probably broke up in the most interesting thing I was going to say all yeah, night. There's, there's something like I could feel it and it was gone. I mean, I think it's gone forever because I can't really remember what I said. Yeah, um, you're, you're uh, a forward thinker. That means you're always going in and <laughs> never backtrack. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think. I, look, but look, my point was simply this: just everyone just needs to read a bit more. There's a book by Herbert Spencer called First Principles, which is a difficult book. Uh, but it used to be very fashionable. Um, but it, it has a, uh, the opening of that book, the opening of the book starts with this premise. And he had some dodgy views and things like this. But the opening book of that starts with the premise that, that you, you, in other words, that there's always a kernel of truth in what your opponent is saying. Always. Even if the, even if the opinion is utterly rebarbative, even if you find it just horrendous, there's going to be something in there a grain of something that you can learn from. And I think that's a really good way to see things. Like, you know, there have been moments where, you know, I read this social justice stuff because I want material, or, you know, I want to come up with stuff. And it's, and so much of it is utter bollocks. So much of it is so ludicrous. And then every now and then, every now and then, someone will make a point and it will stop me in my tracks. And I think, well, maybe they're right about this. And maybe I'm wrong about something. And maybe, maybe a bit more discussion is required. Um, you know, that's the, I think that's all it is. Just, just you get rid of that. The reason why uh, so many of the social justice activists have that horrible certainty, you know, they, when you talk to them, you can tell it's never crossed their mind that they could be wrong about anything. It just wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to them, right? And that's because they only read the stuff that already confirms what they think. They, 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 or if they do read something opposing them, it is with a view to attack it. And, and scorn it, not with an open mind. Um, so that, I think, is the, you know, if everyone just read more, we'd be fine. <laughs> do you think that there's going to be a post-woke uh, world at some point? And yeah. how, what do you think is going to be the next woke or the post-wokeness? Who the hell knows? Who knows? But, I mean, won't it be interesting, like, in 20 years' time when all the current social justice activists are considered completely beyond the pale and, and, and Generation Z will be, you know, cancelling them? You know, because because I, 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 a fun game is to try and work out what is it that the woke are saying now that will be completely unacceptable in thirty years' time, and and there's all sorts of things. So, some of them are like, for instance, they're really ageist. They hate old people, and they, they they talk about boomers. And I bet that at some point you can get cancelled for that. And then there's their their hatred of the working class. It's because they're mostly rich. Now, most of the people yeah. who, who have this come from really bourgeois backgrounds. So their hatred of the working class, and I think it, it does come out as real hatred, as, as mistrust. They don't like democracy, you know, because pe people vote the wrong way. Well, maybe at some point that's going to be the thing that you get counseled for, is not, not being supportive of democracy. If we win the liberal argument, if we, can get, if we reinstate the, the principles of social liberalism, which is what I want, uh, the woke won't survive because they're, they're essentially illiberal. Uh, well, isn't that Ill, an illiberal practice of social liberalism to cancel the illiberal? I wouldn't. I'm not talking about cancelling. I'm talking about cultivating a, a culture in which such things are no longer acceptable. Take, for instance, racism. Uh, we now are fortunate enough to live in a country where uh, declarations of racism are treated with the scorn they deserve. You know, you make yourself an outsider by being openly racist. I think that's a really good thing. That isn't censorship. That's many, many years of, of, of building up a kind of social contract of what is acceptable and what is not. I actually think you should be able to express racist views if you wish. I don't believe in hate speech laws. But what's great is if you do so now, people are going to ridicule you. They're going to criticize you and put you in your place. And that's also part of free speech. Um, so yeah, I'm not talking, I'm not coming from, I'm not talking about an authoritarian practice like cancel culture. That's not what I mean by that. What I'm talking about is, 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 thrashing this stuff out and having the arguments and reaching a consensus, which is what we should be doing. Do you think that social liberalism needs to be updated for the internet age, the, the age where we don't read long form stuff? Can, can it be reduced into hashtags? Can it? No, but we do in effect. Like, like, I think 
like with Joe Rogan proved that actually long form podcasts are the way to go and made it made it made it hugely popular. Yeah, people yeah. people in spite of our assumptions that people had absolutely no uh, attention span. Actually, they do, and not only that, they want to listen to really interesting, complex, nuanced discussions. Humanity is so underrated. <laughs> I, I, that sounds like one of the tenets of, that, of social uh, they think that Sorry, Yeah, but, but it's true because, like, if you when you talk to people, as you know. You shouldn't be assuming they're too stupid to understand you, and that you 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 have a duty to educate them. You know, this is what this is what comes through in the social justice writing is that they they think people are like if they hear the wrong words or someone bad says something bad to them, then they will automatically be, take on board those horrible views. You know, that's what they that's what they think, and that just ultimately comes from a really degraded view of humanity. That's what I think. I, I'm, I'm just more optimistic about people. Yeah, sure, there are some utter scumbags out there, some irredeemable people um, who, for whatever reason, have become the way they are. Yeah, I, I get that. But most people are good. Va the vast majority of people are just really decent people who make mistakes like we all do. Jesus. I mean, this is the one thing I can't bear about the woke movement is this, this view that everyone should be perfect and should never say the wrong thing and and should never joke about the wrong thing and, and 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 they need to be ideologically pure and anything in their past which would be deemed problematic to use their parlance makes them a sinner like a like a demon i i, I think it's such an anti-humanity viewpoint i think it's so unempathetic right i think we need empathy and compassion in all forms of life otherwise we don't what kind of life is that? You know, you particularly need it in politics because politics is all about conflict and politics should be robust and, and, and uh, confrontational and antagonistic. It should have all of that stuff, but it should still have at the heart of it empathy. It needs to have that. You need to be able to argue with someone in a robust way without assuming that they're saying what they're saying because they're evil. You know, you, you, you have to start, you know, when, when you see it, hear socialists talk about the right and conservatives as being people who want to press austerity measures because they hate poor people and want babies to die and all this sort of stuff. No, they think they think that if they attract more rich people to the country, if they give tax breaks to the rich, it will have a trickle-down effect and it will benefit the poor. And you need to have a good faith interpretation of other people's arguments. Empathy, in other words. Not assuming that the person you're talking to is just some uh, just vindictive monster. Do you find that comedy is just one tool to use to achieve uh, your desired outcome of, of social liberalism? I, mean, I think so. Do, do you want to write like a like a, a romance or a thriller novel or, or a different genre to, to get your ideas across? Do you think it's possible? Uh, I think <coughs> satire does. satire is trying to change things. I don't think comedy is really. Well, if I'm if I'm in if I'm being a comic if I'm making jokes. I, I tend to just prioritize making people laugh if I'm doing stand-up. Um, but when I do a more satirical... I've done stand-up shows which are more satirical in nature and tend to be more political in nature, and in that case, I am trying to make a point. Hmm. Whether that point has any effect or not, I don't know about that. I mean, some people have said that I've persuaded them on certain issues, but I don't think it's been through comedy, if I'm being honest. I think it's, I think it's been through uh, just a discussion. Do you enjoy satire? Does it does it get does it weigh down on you to be trying to make a point all the time, or no. how, do you, how do you leaven your your output as an artist? Uh, I actually would find it more stressful not to say what I think. I think, like I find it. Um, I mean, there was some. There was a time when I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, because I was younger and I still thought I had the potential of a stand-up career and that sort of thing or a moderately successful one and that would depend on being popular and so therefore there were certain views that I wouldn't necessarily articulate even if I thought them and I've got over that now and it happened about nine or ten years ago where I just started thinking I don't care anymore what people say about what I I'm just going to say what I think because also I think it's really self-destructive to be dishonest I think it really hurts yourself more than anyone else and I've seen it with close people people who are very close to me in my life and I won't obviously mention who um, and I've seen them destroy themselves uh, by not being honest. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, so 
I would find, yeah, I, where was I going with this? I think I was trying to say that it's, 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 it's better to just, it's better to produce work for the work's sake, not for how you think that work will be received. Because I think when you do that, you, well, I don't think you're really an artist at that point. You can have a commercial concern through the creation of your work, but then you see, I think if you're an artist, you create the work that it most closely reflects what you want to say. And then if that happens to be commercial, then that's a lucky accident. That's, mm. that's great. That, you know, like a lot of the stuff I've produced has no commercial viability whatsoever. Uh, it just so happens with Titania for some reason, because of the timing and because yeah. of the physical yeah. moment, uh, that it has a commercial life to it, but that's not the priority. That's not the reason to, to I'd still be doing it. I'd still be doing it. Even if, if no one was reading the book or buying the book, uh, it just so happens that they are. And that's helpful because I've got a mortgage. Not a garden though. I don't have a garden, right. But, but, you know, and it's a small house I live in and I, I don't need much more than this. Uh, I, and also if I had a garden, I have to, I'd have to learn how to be a gardener. I'd have to actually work out how to cultivate flowers and things. It's hard. You they get a dog, though. I'm saying <laughs> your dream dog would come into your life. Well, I could have the dog, but then I'd have to deal with weeds and earthworms and all of yeah. that. I don't like dirt. You know, I don't like getting dirty, and I think that's that's something you would. Uh, I'm very like conscious of hygiene, and I think like mucking around <laughs> in the toilet would not be necessarily good for me. Okay, so we we've got uh, the intimation of OCD. Like, there's some sort of. We're, we're getting oh, some sure. real Andrew here. Uh, look, well, haven't we all got? We've all got our own obsessions and, and difficulties, and, and you know, yeah. I'm I'm the first to admit that. But I think not wanting to get dirty is probably quite a good, you know, standard to live by, isn't it? <laughs> is is satire like uh, an anti-propaganda or a, a, a propaganda that has enough self-awareness that it's not pure propaganda? It's not totally about the point. It's about the act of thinking through a point. Yeah. Is that like the same? I don't think, think it's propaganda at all. Uh, no, because pro pro propaganda would be to deliberately misrepresent in order to, uh, hmm. in order to uh, propagate, as the word implies, uh, a, a viewpoint that that person may, may not necessarily hold. And by the way, I don't think propaganda is actually necessarily that effective. I mean, studies seem to show that, uh, Propaganda only really works if you're already predisposed to that that way of thinking, oh. and in fact, in fact, can have the reverse effect. Uh, I can find you the link to this. There's been a number of studies about this where, where actually, if you if you issue if a government issues propaganda onto a people who don't believe it, it has the effect of reinforcing their views against what you want them to think. So there's all sorts of evidence of this. Um, so I don't know uh, whether, but satire is not propaganda. You know, I don't think it is at all. I'm not trying to uh, make people think a certain way. I'm trying to expose follies in society and vices of, of powerful people. Um, and I, either that works or it doesn't, but that will depend on the individual. But no, it's not, proper, it's not propagandizing. Do you have any ideas about how the... I, I asked you about post-wokeness, but I, I wonder if the power structures, the media structures that, that exist now, do you think that they're... Uh, for for example, you have the New York Times, you have a lot of these really big uh, established institutions that it seems like have been captured by wokeness, and all they're able to do now is expend their authority to expend like their established worth uh, by just like uh, ascribing to nonsensical ideas or uh, yeah. restarting up racist uh, behaviors and attitudes in the populace and stuff like that. Do you see a terminal a terminal? Uh, juncture for that i don't i'm not i'm not a prophet <laughs> i don't know what's going to happen well I, you study I, it though you're very aware of it you're you're in there you're you're, you're taking on these op-eds you're you're in contention with this stuff but i don't but i don't know where the end point is okay. I, I i i mean the more you know about something the more you know that you're unable to predict where it goes you know okay i mean talk, talk to any economist the first thing an economist will tell you is that that any economic predictions are throughout history of they're not, almost always wrong, you know. Um, that, or did I? Well, I read that. And jo Joseph Schumpeter wrote a book. The economist Joseph Schumpeter wrote a book about this. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Capitalism, social democracy, and something. 
can't remember the title. I read it two years ago, and it, he talks about this. He talks about the idea of the, you know, economic predictions are just never going to work. And this is why I always I find it very funny when people try and predict the future in any form. But, uh, you know, I, 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 you're, you'll always be disappointed if you predict where things are going to go. That's why when people talk about being on the right side of history, I think, well, careful. So I don't know where it's going to go. I imagine I see signs of yeah. the movement self-imploding, yeah. particularly because we do live in a capitalist society. So, for instance, when they produce a film like Birds of Prey or the new Charlie An- Charlie's Angels reboot, so sort of overtly propagandizing uh, feminist films and no one goes to see it, right? And so then you've got Hollywood uh, studios losing an awful lot of money. Um, how long can they keep that up? I mean, they do this quite a lot, you know? Uh, I mean, The Last Jedi would have made probably three times as much if they hadn't gone woke. Um, so at some point, at some point, I think um, avarice will take over, and uh, and that that might be the thing that destroys it. Huh. And avarice will, at least in entertainment, eventually um, support that which is talented. By which I mean is actually serving serving the audience's desires. Yeah, and also because there is more of an appetite for interesting creative work than people suppose. You know, I think it's this idea that you need to. But that's why I mean, so many of the creative industries, television and film, where what they're doing is they're spoon feeding stuff which is tried and tested, and they know it's worked before. That's why you get all sorts of reboots. But actually, people get really excited about when you take risks. And sure, if a studio takes risks every now and then, it will flop, and it just won't work. Uh, so what? You know, and, and, and every now and then something massive will happen. I mean, I think about television. There has never been a better television show than there's a show called The Singing Detective by a man called Dennis Potter, which was written in 1985 or 1986, which is a television series. Actually, I mean, he's a British writer. That particular series did well in America and, 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 got, and, and was lauded in America for some reason, even though it is quintessentially British. Um, but that work is so, I mean, I've watched it a number of times. It's so layered and, in, and, and, and bizarre and groundbreaking and, and uh, uh, you can watch it it's eight episodes I think and, and so it's about nine, ten hours long but you can watch it again and again and every time something new comes but it's so risky it's so I cannot imagine it being commissioned you know, th- this is a story let me just picture this this is a story of a man who has this um, psoriasis of extreme form of psoriasis which cripples him for months at a time his skin is flaking off He's, he's in hospital with this crippling disease and he's a novelist. He writes detective fiction. And, and because he cannot do anything, in his mind, what he's trying to do is rewrite his last novel. And at the same time, he's trying to piece together uh, the story of his own past and what happened in his childhood. So the narrative flicks between his childhood in a working class forest, the forest of Dean, which is this young uh, mining town back in the day. Uh, where he witnessed his mother's infidelity and this caused all sorts of issues so he's it's this kind of psychological exploration of the past but it's also using the detective motif of trying to pick up on like he says that your life is like a detective story that you when you're trying to work out something that happened in your past you're looking for clues and you're trying to solve something and all of this is going on and he's rewriting the present as well as the past and it goes back and forth and it's so complicated it's so bloody complicated as a story I mean even explaining it now I can't get to the bottom of it but it is it is it's challenging. You watch it and you are constantly challenged and it's hard work. But it was ma- it used to be a major primetime show on, on BBC, on, on British TV. It was majorly lauded in America, like I say. How, can you imagine that happening now? Can you imagine a work of art like that being pushed out there? I mean, yeah, there are some impressive shows on television, but there's nothing like that. Uh, because that could have just flopped. You know, you watch that. And all, also, something else that happens in that show... Every now and then, the characters will start lip-syncing uh, to a 1930s popular song of the era. And it's almost like a kind of choric narrative of what's going on through popular music of the, of, of the past, of the time when this guy was growing up. You know, imagine doing like something that could just completely fail. Yeah, I bet on paper it failed. I bet, the, I bet the commissioners were saying, what the hell is this? But they went for it. They took the risks. And, and um, so I think more, you know, I, I don't know where I was going with that. What was the question? Are you going to make something like that? Do you have something like that coming and in, in forming in, I, in you? Or? I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I could never make something of that quality. But I could, I you know, I'd say that. 
Well, no, no, no. I mean, he's a genius, utter genius. Um, but I could certainly aspire to do things that are uh, innovative. I have a number of scripts I've written which I've never been able to do anything with uh, because I've never been able to get them on. Uh, and I think there's a couple of them that which I'm really pleased with and I'm really excited by into fruition, having them realised, is, is, is nearly impossible in an artistic culture that is risk-averse, you know? So, uh, yeah, if, if I... if, if one day I had the resources, then yeah, I would, I would, um, I would like to do something like that. Uh, I, I mean, I've written a lot of stage plays. That's what I used to do a lot. Dramas as well. I've written a number of um, dramas for Radio Four here, which have no comedic elements in them, and I, I, I like that. I like that side of my um, output, but it's not something I'm able to explore that much because ultimately you have to do, um, you know, particularly with Titania. Titania sort of is all encompassing at the moment. It won't last forever, it'll last for another year or so, but um, that, that, that to me is taking up most of my time. And also, of course, I have to take the work where it arrives. I can't just spend my whole time in vanity projects that, you know, vanity projects is the wrong word, but I can't spend all my time just doing things exclusively uh, that have no commercial viability. Uh, although I do, so I've got projects on the go. So I do the stuff that pays me, and then there are other things I'm writing which will probably never pay me anything, um, you know. Well, I was just wondering if, if you, uh, thank you, I, I wanted to know, like, what else you want to do after this, that shining beacon of blonde uh, superiority, uh, ah. Yeah. <laughs> whatever happens mm. to trads out. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, uh, I just do whatever at the time feels right, you know, yeah. and I don't like doing things for a long time, you know, so uh, I'll probably end up doing something completely different i write musicals i don't know if you know i write musical theater uh, i'm writing a new musical for next year uh, which will be on at the lyric theater in belfast um and i want to do more of that you know uh, is this like wagnerian or uh no it's a it's um it's a, a musical about a it's an adaptation of a book about a young man uh, uh who grew up during the troubles in belfast and uh he delivers bread it's called bread boy uh, so I'm going to do that for, that's going to be on in, in, uh, August, I think. Anyway, so, um, but I've done a number of, um, musicals. I did an adaptation of Huckleberry Finn. I did an adaptation of, uh, Do you um, compose the music or you work with, uh, a... no, I, 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 no, I write the script and I write the lyrics and I work with the musician. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I want to do, um, yeah, just whatever come. I just, I, I tend to just do what happens and what i feel like at any given time it's always a struggle though isn't it because you've got to live you've got to make money as well so i write articles that do you know do various other things like that you and douglas murray are coming on you're doing like some sort of whirlwind rolling stone kind of thing touring right yeah march is it yeah we're doing a uh it is whirlwind it is very rock and roll it's uh it's i think we're only doing 10 or 11 dates it's actually quite a short tour um, but what we thought is we'd, we'd condense it. So we do like a short tour of the country, but we we do big venues. So they're all like sort of 3000 seat venues, but there's, but, the, but, but there's not many of them, you know? Um, and that's, uh, so it's called resisting wokeness. And the idea of the tour is that we're going to, we want to talk about these issues. We want people to be able to come on. So the first half will, will be just in discussion. And then the second half will be Q and a, it'll be totally into the audience trying to thrash these ideas out. And I think what excites me about it is, well, a number of things do, but because um, Douglas is a, a well-known conservative commentator from the UK and, and he and I disagree on all sorts of things uh, politically. I think on this woke issue, we're very much in alignment, um, but that's not to mean that we don't, that we know everything about it. So we, so actually, because a lot of this stuff is quite complicated and, it, and, and I think by talking through it with an audience and getting their feedback, like uh, we can probably learn a lot and also uh, get closer to what we need to be able to uh, achieve to to and just so have I, research tour it's kind of yeah but that sounds like i'm trying to use the audience as i'm not oh, why not? I'm, actually, I'm really interested to hear what people have got to say i'm sort of really hoping that some of the woke people will turn up and join in with the discussion you know but so far as what all, all i've had online is people complaining about it and saying they're going to protest but they you know they really do people like that they, they really actually turn up but um <laughs> what what are you protesting about anyway it's it's a you know, we, it, it's a discussion. We're just having a chat. There's no threat there. Uh, we, there are a number of venues that refuse to take the show on the grounds that the, it was too woke, that, that they are too woke. In fact, one venue said explicitly, we are a woke venue. 
We're not going to have a show called Resisting Wokeness. Another venue said, why would we have a show that's so very, very white? Can you believe that? Yeah, I can. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. This you is know, in so America, these venues? In the UK. Oh, okay. No, we're not coming to America. We're not coming to America. Okay. But the, the assumption is quite interesting. Like, So they assume that it's an all-white show and the moderator is, is actually Indigenous Canadian. Um, but I suppose they just made that assumption, you know? Uh, but but calling anyway, even if it's a white, even if it's two white people talking, why is that a problem? I don't get what's going on here. In the know? UK, too. Oh, yeah. Are, are you under the impression then that the UK isn't as bad as America? Because I think you're wrong about that. No, I, I mean, I, I was just, I was looking into that um, court case that just finished up yesterday about the uh, the British guy who got, I don't know, manhandled by the cops for liking a limerick. Um, that was ha- Harry Miller, the Harry Miller case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was, uh, he, he retweeted a, a limerick that people thought was transphobic. Oh, he retweeted. He, he didn't write it. He retweeted, the police visited his place of work and the police also... Uh, phoned him up and they investigated. It was an official investigation for non-crime. The, the official designation is non-crime hate incident. So he committed a non-crime hate incident. By the way, the police have uh, investigated and uh, recorded 120,000 non-crime hate incidents in the last five years. That's a lot of police time on non-crime. And if you ask me, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty authoritarian. It's a real yeah problem. that 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 really shocks me. Like I can't believe that you guys like the police like open 1984 and they're like this sounds like a really good idea. Let's go with this. Right. Well, Harry Miller actually said that to the investigating officer. Said you realize 1984 is not an instruction manual. It's a warning, and the guy didn't get the reference. People aren't reading. People aren't reading. That just proves it, right? Uh, so no, you have the First Amendment. You have. A safeguard against the yeah yeah you have the second as well uh but <laughs> we don't have any kind of protections let's not get into the gun thing we don't have any kind of protections against freedom of speech we don't even have a written constitution we have an unwritten constitution uncodified which means it is constantly continually sorry subject to reinterpretation right which means that we have to be especially vigilant when it comes to these issues. That's why when people say to me, oh, you're making a big fuss just because someone was arrested for a joke. I'm like, the principle is big. I mean, yeah, some guy goes to prison for a few weeks for joking about Madeleine McCann on Facebook, right? You could say, well, so what? Well, it means a great deal to him, for one thing. But also, the, the principle is, is, is huge because the principle, that, that means we don't really live in a free society. And, we, and you know, we do need to guard against it, particularly with our unwritten constitution as we have it. Um, so I think you're in a, in a way you're probably better than I know the woke stuff in America tends to go further than it does here. And of course, you've got a, a major um, historical race uh, uh, issues, you know, which we don't have. We were complicit in the slave trade, of course, but it's a different story. It's a, it's a very different thing. Um, so, you know, but yeah, we have to be very careful. Well, I think in, in some ways you're worse than us and in some ways we're worse than you. Maybe we have... can combine together. The worst can have this part of the world and the best can have this other part of the world. I don't support segregation on any means. So no, but... <laughs> not even ideologically. I mean, you wouldn't have, no, not even ideologically. Cause I want people to talk more. I think the problem is that people aren't talking enough. But what I was going to say is that you wouldn't have a situation where a teenage girl is dragged through the courts because she posted on Instagram, uh, some rap lyrics, which featured the N word. And she posted those lyrics because her friend had been killed in a car accident and it was his favorite song. So she posted the rap lyrics on Instagram. So she was prosecuted for that because the words were considered offensive. She was fitted with an electronic uh, tag and said she couldn't stay out after 8 p.m. That's, that's a serious problem. Now, look, it was in the end challenged and, and, and uh, the appeal was successful. Mm. But I'm really disturbed by the someone. Some, I mean, the rapper wasn't arrested. <laughs> But the, the but the idea of, of, of that 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 can happen in a society that claims to be free uh, is troubling. That um, th- that's a, it's a whole other discussion. But you brought up the fact that you guys don't have a constitution like this, and, and I, I have read a little bit about it, the British law just being this huge, massive pile of, I guess, precedent or something like that. It's, a, it's difficult. It's it's, it, it's because of. Custom or 
Yeah, you end up you end up reinterpreting precedent and things that have happened before. And and I'm saying there's some there are advantages to this is that you don't have the judiciary getting involved all the time and reinterpreting things all the time. And um, hmm. but I think on balance, it's turned out to be quite a bad thing. I would say, you know. Well, I I wonder how that fits into the the culture of more robust debate. When I watch your news programs, you guys have uh, more blustery interactions where people are disagreeing, and I wonder if that's part of the culture because you guys need to do that in order for the law to actually function in that way. I wasn't even sure that we do particularly. I I, I see that sort of stuff on American uh, TV quite a lot. Um, do you think that we have it more than you? Well, I, I was th- I was watching that interview with uh, that you did. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who. It was like a 14 minute video, and they, they had like nice little graphics whenever you said something quotable. Um, ah. But the, the guy was really challenging you, and that made me think of when Jordan Peterson went on Kathy Newman, and yeah, that went viral because I think a lot of Americans and Canadians didn't really understand that that's kind of like the culture. Like she was she was being very confrontational. No, I, I do remember the interview you're talking about. It was for Sky News, and it was a program called Divided. Uh, yeah. a very good program I think um, and part of that is because you know it, it is but it's not antagonistic for the sake of it. What, it what it's doing is pushing back on your ideas so that you are put into a position where you have to defend them and I don't mind that at all because I, I like a bit of pushback um, because I like I like to have to uh, defend what I'm saying um, and if I can't do that then I'm probably wrong about something so, so I mean that's it's not uh, hostile for its own sake. It's it's yeah. uh, it's combative, I suppose, uh, but for the, all the right reasons. Yeah, I think that's yeah. And I, I can see how I, I, this is too loose, and I don't really understand it. But I can see how the way that your that that custom and that law is formed um, makes it much more dangerous. The the totalitarian aspect of wokeness can be much more dangerous because it can go through and reinterpret basically everything. Uh, like like kind of like a, a mind virus can just eat through the whole thing and orient it in a singular direction. Right. This is why I'm nervous about woke culture infiltrating the government and the law enforcement agencies. I think that's that. If it was just a few students on campus getting annoyed because Jermaine Greer is giving a talk, you know, and setting off a few fire alarms and whatever, I mean, that's not good. Uh, but it's not the same as when uh, policymakers and quangos who have actual clout are imposing these ideas onto the rest of us. That's different. And particularly with our are constitutional problems um it's 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 yeah it's not a good uh, situation to be in so, so we just have to uh continually put pressure on those in power to ensure that they don't allow uh this stuff to to, to occur you know um and the problem is that the the the, the you know we have a right-wing uh, government uh which in of itself has bought on, bought into a lot of these woke ideas. Hmm. So, so when, like, you know, when we talk about those who are in power, I mean, I get this a lot. People say to me, well, you, you know, the right are in power, you know, Trump's in power in America and Johnson's in power in the UK and you're, you're going after the left. Why are you going after the left? Because the right are the ones with all the power, but I'm not going after the left as in the economic argument or whatever, or socialism. I'm going after wokeness, which is not really authentically left wing at all. I'm going after, I'm talking about the culture war. And the problem is that the, the, culturally speaking, the woke have a lot of power. They've infiltrated everything. I mean, the universities are obvious. I mean, everyone knows that. They're completely in control in the universities. But they're also largely in control of the media, the arts, law, education, government, law enforcement, right? So, of course, by going after them, I am punching up and, 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 and you know, scouring away at powerful forces um but the simplistic interpretation of that is well why aren't you going after the tories well as it happens i have written a lot of jokes uh, about the tories i do it a lot in my stand-up i've done it a lot previously um so you know but i in in terms of titania her her whole raison d'etre is is to to go after identitarians particularly on the left that's what that character's about yeah. So, you know, if I want to if I want to mock Boris Johnson, I'll do that probably in another forum. You yeah. know, it wouldn't yeah. be appropriate to do it that way. I I have not um 
seen a convincing argument, though I, I see this tiny little movement, um, anti-anti-woke movement on Twitter, where they just constantly criticize those who are criticizing wokeness. But I have not yet seen anybody with talent actually take up that position yet. And, and well, because, because the anti-anti-woke people that you're talking about on Twitter invariably misunderstand the point. I, I've, I've yet to see any of them authentically uh, uh, summarize my position, accurately summarize my position, sorry. I, I, so when I, when I get into discussions with these people, I will say, to them, okay, so what is, what is your actual problem with what I've said? And what they come back with is never my point, is never my perspective. It's something they've imagined my perspective is, right? So, so as a movement, the anti-anti-woke movement is pretty redundant and abortive as it stands because they don't know what it is they're criticizing this goes back to the point i say about reading like like make sure you know what you're criticizing before you criticize it that should be a basic you know that's why i spend all my time reading social justice bullshit right (laughs) doesn't that doesn't that depress you or do you do you like ever like start to like look at yourself in the mirror and uh start peeling off your whiteness like subconsciously it's just so unconvincing you know it's so full of flaws and it's so self-contradictory so no i mean and sometimes it can be quite entertaining and and like i say every now and then they come up with a good point and you think well i'm glad i read that then you know Well, thank you for your time, Andrew. This is, I was really, really nervous to talk to you because you're, you're such a good speaker uh, and like watching all your news program things. I'm like, Oh no, I like this guy's going to be run away. I don't know. You should be nervous. You should fear me. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.